Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50, Psalm 5-0. I'm Chris Risk, and I'm blowing it already. And I'm filling in this morning for Pastor Mike McDonald as we continue through our series of the Psalms. Psalm 50 reads, uh, the Lord our judge. You want to see something funny? Go ahead and Google bad tattoos. And you'll see pictures of these people that had some really bad tattoos. And about half a dozen of them are, only God can judge me with judge spelled wrong or sometimes even God spelled wrong or something. You know, they didn't think that through now, did they? Only God can judge me. Because if you really, really believe that, wouldn't that scare you? Only God can judge me. Plenty of people, though are fine with God judging them because, hey, there's now therefore no condemnation. I'm not afraid. A whole lot of people feel fine with God judging them. But what if we're not talking about condemnation? What if we're not talking about uh, guilt and going to hell or heaven? What if we're talking about God judging our heart? What if we're talking about God judging our attitudes and our motives, our devotion? How would you feel about God judging you for that? 1 Peter 4, 17 to 18 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What if you were judged by God for your attitude? Because that is what Psalm 50 is going to be talking about when we read in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for that we must all appear before the judgment seat of God of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Psalm 50 is going to clarify what that means and where things done in the body actually originates from, where it's supposed to come from. But before we get into that, let's pray. Father in heaven, we lift you up and ask you to, to just bless this time together. Teach us with your Holy Spirit, not just to our heads, but to our hearts. Bless our time. Have mercy on the words that uh, I'm about to speak. And uh, teach us, mold us, conform us into your image. And let us be not guilty of any of these things that we read about here in Psalm 50. As always, we do want to lift up another church that's meeting this morning. We lift up Charity Baptist Church and Pastor Justin White, and uh, we ask you to bless their service that they're having over there. Be high and lifted up. Be glorified. Let their worship be come up to your throne and uh, give them peace. Hear their prayers and bless their plans. We give this whole morning up to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Psalm 50 can be stated like this. The Lord rebukes plain church and calls for worship from the heart. Psalm 50, a, prayer, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a Levite. He was the son of Berechiah, and he was a musician, and he was appointed by David to preside over the service of song in the house of the Lord. So if you've got a singer-songwriter like King David who thought that this guy Asaph was good enough to be head of the uh, director of music for the temple, then you know that he must have been pretty good. 
Asaph was chief over the ministers of the ark and to celebrate and to thank the Lord in praise and uh, praise the God of Israel. And also Asaph's sons were also part of the praise team for the, uh, for the temple. Asaph is the man who wrote this psalm, and this is actually the first of Asaph's songs that you're going to see in the Bible, but you'll see more later on. He's probably got to see all kinds of people coming in to the temple to worship all the time. Or in the transition time, when you had the tabernacle and the ark was still in Jerusalem, he got to see these people come and go, and he probably got to see some sincere people and a lot of phonies. Psalm 50 is actually one of the psalms that was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the festivals that required everybody in Israel to all come to Jerusalem to attend this festival. And where would they all stay? Well, they would all stay in tabernacles. They would all stay in these lean-tos and these shelters that they had built with palm leaves and everything so that they could uh, recreate what it was like to live in the wilderness for the children of Israel living in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Asaph probably got to see, you know, the all kinds of versions of, of the Israel coming in. It was kind of the Old Testament version of the Christers, you know, the people that only come to church during Christmas and Easter. So he got to see the people that were very sincere, and he got to see the people that weren't sincere whatsoever. And the, this whole thing starts out like a, a courtroom scene. So first we see the judge enters the courtroom, verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And I was really, really tempted to call this part, here come to judge. But I knew that probably a lot of people wouldn't understand that analogy. So I kept, it, uh, kept that out of it. But the picture is a courtroom. And we call judges your honor. And we stand when they enter the court. And so this judge is called El Elohim Yahweh. He is the mighty one, God the Lord. And El rise, who are everyone who rises? The earth. The whole earth? Well, from the rising of the sun to its setting. How far is that? Verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. You see the scene? It's not a quiet scene. It's not a still small voice scene. It's got pyrotechnics and it's got devouring fire and it's got a mighty tempest. All rise, the right honorable El Elohim Yahweh, the mighty one, God the Lord is now presiding. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. The judge enters the scene, and here is what he says. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Out of all the earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the people that he wants to talk to are his own. The rest of the world is watching here but to watch, but God is about to talk to only the people who have a covenant with him by sacrifice. That covenant was signed and chartered at Mount Sinai, sealed by a covenant by sacrifice. But here, God is speaking out of Zion. God made a covenant with these people on Sinai in Exodus 19 through 24. A covenant, that covenant had laws, it had ceremonies, it had a tabernacle. The Ten Commandments are found in this section. That covenant was still going on here in Psalm 50. But the mountain has changed. It's not Sinai, it's now Zion. And right about here, 
I would have loved to have gone through a rabbit trail with you because Paul actually talks about these two mountains in Galatians. He talks about Sinai being the law, and he talks about Jerusalem being grace. Zion is Jerusalem, okay? But uh, we don't have time to do that because we want to beat it uh, to wax before the Catholics, so I'm going to just cut that part out. But write this down, okay? Galatians 4, 23 to 26. Write that maybe in the margins of your Bible next to uh, Psalm 50, verse 2, and keep that for a rabbit trail some other time. Uh, But for now, he wants to meet with his people on the other side of the contract because he has some disputes. He says, my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by a sacrifice, and that's not just anybody, that's a specific group of people, all the faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Have you made a covenant with God by sacrifice? Sacrifice of who? Then take heed, because this is talking to us too. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. God himself is judge. Not you, not me, not the pastor, not some uh, religious self-righteous co-worker who always has a comment. You say only God can judge me? Okay, here we go. And that word Selah, nobody really knows entirely what it means, but it probably means a break for us to think for a second, to meditate on this. It may have had an instrumental during that part. So, you know, Selah, guitar solo. So two groups of people he accuses. One are his people, and the other are wicked hypocrites who appear to worship, but actually they are rebellious. That's the point of Psalm 50. God is going to call these two groups of people out. These people are not outsiders. They are not unbelievers. They are not pagans. They are not people who are ignorant of his way or his words. The judge is about to speak to the first group. So the judge to the religious Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Who's he talking to? He's talking to my people. O Israel, I am God, your God. This is to the genuine, true people. Not fakes, not phonies, not people who are deceived into thinking that they are his when they are not. God is going to scold them. For what? Verse 8, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Look at what they're doing. They're doing their religious duty. They are not neglecting the sacrifices. But God still has some kind of issue with them. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. They are doing. They are obeying. They seem to be, though, under this delusion that God wants ritual, that he wants sacrifices. If they would just give a head of livestock up and then check the box, then they're square with God. I can get out of here. It's, it, to translate it into modern times, if I just uh, cut God a check, put it in the box, uh, sing a little bit, maybe put my hands up in the air, uh, then sit down and listen for a while, then sing another song, I can get out of here, and I'm square with God for a week. That's not how it works. I get it, Lord. I'm doing. I wrote you a check. God's not fooled by that. What have they done wrong? Well, they did what many, 
if not all of God's people, have done sooner or later. They have fallen into religion. It happens. And we, the true believers in Christ, are probably the most prone to falling into religion out of anybody else. In Revelation 2.4, Jesus told the church in Ephesus, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. If you've been a Christian for years, it's happened to you. And it doesn't usually come with a rebellion to God, but it comes with a lack of love in the worshiping of him. These people were not neglecting their worship Your burnt offerings are continually before me. The problem was that love had left and ritual and formality had come in. Religion breeds legalism. And I've already stood up here before and I've talked about how good works are in you and how the Holy Spirit within us is the one that moves you to do and serve and serve each other. But that is not these people's problems. Their problem was thinking that I have to do things because I need to earn God's love. I need to buy God's favor. When we start getting religious, we go down a couple of dangerous patterns of thought. One of them is we expect God to do what we say. We paid our dues. You know, when you buy an Amazon package, you've paid for it and you expect it. And if it doesn't show up, you're livid. You're on the phone to them. We kind of expect that with God. I prayed to you for something. I didn't get my package. That's not how it works. And we have no reason to be angry when we paid for something and it hasn't arrived. Another thing we do is we want people to know we paid. My grandparents' church had this crazy thing that they used to do. They had these little placards all over things in the church. You know, they had pews in their church, and at the end of the pews, they would have this little placard that would say, donated by Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know. Or in the, in the bulletin, they would have, the flowers this week were sponsored by the Jones family, you know. That sounds crazy to us, but I mean, you kind of get the point that they want to uh, thank the people that did that. And maybe even you want to motivate other people to do things like that. But beyond that, it's a trap. It's a trap for religion. I had a friend who became a Christian after he got married, and the first church he ever went to in his life was his wife's church. And they used to do this thing that I've never heard of in any other church. They used to put in the bulletin the name and the amount of what people had given the week before. And he saw that, and he flipped out, and he went to the office, and he said, I don't want that in in the bulletin. And they said, why? And he said, I don't want it in the bulletin. And they said, but you gave good, you know? But you're not, it shouldn't work like that. Jesus said to give in secret. You know, Matthew 6, 3 said that not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. People, religion wants people to see that you paid. Religion also means that we want our pet traditions honored as sacred. You know how you know when you've got an idol in your life? If I smash it and it makes you mad. People have all kinds of crazy religious things that they do, things that are not prescribed in the Bible, things that are not sins in the Bible, but they're there, and if you got rid of them, it would make people have a meltdown. I knew somebody who told me about a church he'd been to where every single Sunday 
The congregation had a section of the service where they stood up and they would sing happy birthday to you, to somebody who'd, everybody who'd had a birthday the week before. 52 Sundays out of a year, part where they'd stand up in church and sing happy birthday to you. Maybe you think that's a good idea. I think that would be annoying. <laughs> but don't you dare cut it out of the service. Because if you did, if somebody's not going to get happy birthday to you sung to them. It's going to be you or your kid or your grandparent or something like that. You will have a, there'll be pitchforks and torches and things like that. Religion does things like that. Things that are not taught or prohibited in the Bible, but they're made doctrines or sins in the church. But it's worse when we think that I have to give to God because, well, he needs me. And if I don't give to God, the whole establishment is just going to come crumbling to the ground. I've heard people say, we better do better or Christianity is going to be gone in 10 years. What a joke. Christianity is going to be gone in 10 years. Oh, sure, it might be a smaller Christianity, but that doesn't, <laughs> that's not bad. That's not necessarily a bad thing. People will say that. This may shock you, but God doesn't need you or me. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the, that moves in the field is mine. God's not poor. God owns it all, including what you and I think that we own. What do you think is going on when people... Uh, when he tells people in the Bible to give cattle and goats and lambs, that God's a, a steak eater, you know? He's, he's not a vegetarian. <laughs> no, he says, verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. I do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. God needs goats. Verse 13 is God actually being sarcastic. I do not... Uh, do I eat the blood of bulls or drink the blood of goats? People think that God needs goats to function. Yes, we must appease the God with goat's blood. You know, Some people think God's kind of like a volcano God or something that we need to throw baskets of groceries into or he'll explode. It's, just, it's the same silly line of reasoning that some TV evangelists have. Well, like, folks, I need $2 million by midnight tonight or we'll have to close the doors. Well, maybe your doors should be closed, you know? Did you ever think of that? I'll tell you something kind of funny. Verse 9, look at verse 9. The Revised Standard Version translate this as, I will accept no bull from your house. You know? <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. What do you think is going on in this system of animal sacrifice? Why is it done? Um, for those of you who have attempted or succeeded to read the Bible through, uh, you know that you probably were going good. You got through Genesis just fine. And maybe even you got through Exodus. But, oh, you got to Leviticus and uh, uh, things got kind of bogged down, didn't they? Leviticus has the offerings, and it's got details about the tabernacle, and it's got minute details about the high priest's robes and things like that. And I freely admit that it's a great big sleeping pill. Everybody knows that. If you want to read through the Bible, I'm telling you that for the first time through, you can go ahead and skip the book of Leviticus for now, okay? It's not really exciting reading material, but 
the book of Leviticus is really, really good stuff to study, to make a study of. It has the priesthood, and it has the tabernacles, and it has all the different kinds of sacrifices, and all of those point to Jesus all the way through it. Uh, there were many different kinds of sacrifices. They had sin sacrifices. They had free will sacrifices. They had sacrifices that were offerings to thank God. They were offerings that you gave when you were thanking God for being healed. There were sacrifices that you were made. You made for sins that you didn't even know you did. I'm not joking. They're in there. Why? Because God wants goats. They were a lesson. They were a lesson about Jesus. They were a lesson that you and I are not right with God. There is enmity between us and God. There is sin. And someone has to die to reconcile us. And the lesson is that God never ignores sin. And he never uh, lets it slide and forgets it. He punishes it. And if you think that God is cruel for what's being done to an innocent lamb... In the Old Testament, never forget that God's intention always was to be the innocent lamb at the end of the Bible. That's what we have. The lamb was not to feed God or satisfy his hunger. The lamb was so that anybody in faith who knew he needed to be reconciled to God would come and give that lamb to be straight with him. The Old Testament Jew did not get saved by obeying the law. The law was to show him how bad he was and how much he had to make up for. The lamb was so that it would be a reconciliation. The Old Testament Jew was saved the same way you were, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the lamb alone. But religion keeps wanting to make it about routine, the tasks, the rules. People would give livestock from their personal flocks, what happened to the animal's body after it was sacrificed? Well, in most of these sacrifices you see, uh, the priests took the sacrifice, a portion, and you got to keep the rest of the meat. Actually, uh, the children of Israel came into the promised land, and when they did, uh, God decreed that all the tribes of Israel would get a portion of the land. Everybody got a farm, Okay. Everybody except for the tribe of Levi, they did not get a farm. What they got was the, uh, the, the, the temple system. They were the ones who were the intermediary between God and man. Only Levites could go into the tabernacle or the temple. Only Levites could carry the ark. Only Levites could perform the sacrifices for sin. Don't forget, all of that is a picture of Jesus of our great high priest. And G I know Jesus wasn't a Levite, but read the book of Hebrews, and you'll get the answer to that one. When you brought a bull or a goat or a lamb, a portion of the meat went to the priests. If there were grain offerings, then some of the grain was thrown on the fire of the altar, and the rest of the grain went to the priests. The sacrificial laws and tasks were made to kept the, keep the temple system going. And that's important because the temple system is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ. It was a display of the holiness of God and it was the priesthood job to make that their life's work and not a farm. 
their whole mission was to maintain the temple system. And the people stopped caring about what the temple system was teaching them, a holy God and being reconciled to him. They stopped seeing the point. The point is our heart, our motives, our attitude. And even though it's taught all the way through the Old Testament, and they started seeing just the tasks and what they had to do. God wants goats. I'll give them a goat. That's not at all what's going on. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God doesn't need your money. He already owns everything, including the money that you have in your bank account. And if that bugs you, then maybe that's part of the problem. Because it should make us thankful. The Bible teaches this cycle in which he gives us the ability and the strength to gain an income. And we give some of it to, uh, to him as a portion. Why? Not out of rules, but because we love him and we love his people and we also love his kingdom and we recognize that in his kingdom there are just some practical administrative realities that come with that mission. For example, you like having a nice building to come here and meet in? Do you like having electricity in that building that we meet in? Do you like having air conditioning in the summertime or heat in the winter? you like having plumbing? I mean, all of this... You, you like having a, a professional, uh, uh, a paid clergy who are committed to the work of the ministry and the word and not a secular vocation. Those things are not the point any more than bulls and goats and things like that are. Uh, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, God doesn't eat steaks or drink blood or need money. The point is giving in love to God. A religious heart would think that you were giving to a building. Do you know how much money I've given to this built church? What you should have been doing was giving to God. And if you gave it to God, then it's God's now. And after that, it's not yours. Religion fixates on things like the offerings and the goats and the bulls and checks made out to a memo line. That's what these people were doing. They were faithful in their giving, but completely misunderstood what's going on and whom it was for. Bulls, goats, lambs, and our checks are not the priority. What is? 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Obey him in our walk. Obey him in our homes. And obey him in bringing your offerings to give to the Lord for the kingdom, for a place to meet, for support of ministries that are going on outside our eyesight, and to support people who devote their lives to the Word of God. This is biblical. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14 says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But those are just symptoms. The priority is a call for relationship. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. What does God want? Several things. He wants a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He said he owns it all. He's leaving it in your bank account. 
He's not going to lose it. You're drawing off of it to live. So we come with thanksgiving to him. How do you sacrifice thanksgiving? Well, how do you sacrifice anything? You bring it to the altar, and then you leave it there, and you don't expect it back. A lot of people would say, you know, I keep thanking, but when's somebody going to thank me? What if they never do? Would that make you angry? Then perhaps that sacrifice of thanksgiving was not given and left on the altar. He also wants us to perform your vows. All of us made a vow. We said, Jesus, come into my life and take it from me. Romans 8, 9, or 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is not just Savior. He is Lord. How, did he, how do you do that? Didn't you say that? I don't know if you realize what happened when you accepted salvation, but 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 6, 20 says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When you read in the New Testament words like servant and bond servant, it doesn't mean butler, okay, or housemaid. The word is doulos, and it means slave. You were bought. Jesus bought you with his blood, and he is your Lord. You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to darkness, but you were bought and now he calls us to follow him. 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And no, we don't do that perfectly. Good grief. The whole reason Jesus died and rose again was so that we don't get struck dead every time we sin. But you were sa- if you were saved, you will want to follow him. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me as Lord, as shepherd, as master. And yet, though we're slaves, he calls us family and friends. Remember that when you give your sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high. Perform your vows, but also call upon me. Verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And the day of trouble is your first reflex to call upon him. When you sin is your first reflex to confess your sin and, and, and uh, repent of that and ask for forgiveness. A true child of God is absolutely miserable when they are not right with God. They want to come back and they call upon him constantly and it is, comes naturally and it is liberating. One of the biggest problems with religion is that it is exhausting, doing and doing and doing. Two years ago, we went through the book of Micah and uh, I want to go there now. Keep your finger in uh, Psalm 50 and I want you to go to Micah chapter 6. Go to Micah chapter 6, and we'll read here about some exhaustion. Micah 6, verse 1, I hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. 
Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Once again, another courtroom scene. God sues his people all through the Bible. It's crazy. And the people said this, Micah 6, uh, verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Look, what do you want from me, Lord? You want livestock? I'll bring you livestock, you know. I'm giving you to you an offering and sacrifices. The sacrifices aren't cheap, you know. Verse 7, will God be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? They are accusing God of wanting outrageous things. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. Nobody's got that. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is brutal, circular death spin of religion. The religious person will think that God is never satisfied. It's exhausting, and it's depressing, and it's not biblical. You can never give enough. Is there no pleasing you, God? Sure there is, because God never said to give until you're weary and exhausted. Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And there's a big difference between that and religion. You can go back to Psalm 50 now. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Relationship. Following as his disciple, obeying because you love him. That's what's missing from these people and still missing today because that's not how it's supposed to work. I'll tell you how it's supposed to work. John 15, 4 and 5 says this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You have one job, Christian, one rule that you have to live by, one, just one, not hundreds, not thousands, you got one, abide, abide in him. And after that, what'll come out of it, you will bear much fruit. That's what'll come. You will obey because you hear the voice of the shepherd and you will want to follow. You're following because he's your master and you want to walk the way he walks. I'll tell you another famous verse. <clears throat> it's Ephesians 5.18. Some of you might have it memorized, but I tell you what, all of you have heard it, and as soon as I start saying it, you'll know what it is. It goes like this, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And I don't know what you think of when you hear filled with the Spirit. Maybe you get a picture in your head of a glass of water, you know, filled, filled to the brim. That's filled with the Spirit. But you know, you don't have to think of that as the picture in your mind. You can think of the sail of a ship being filled with the wind and being blown wherever he wants you to be. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. 
He said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3, 8. Moving you where he wants you to be. Moving you to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is not religion. Abide. That's the one thing you have. Get it back. Get back in right relationship. Keep your heart right with him. Now that was our God to the religious. But here he's got another group. The judge to the hypocrites. Verse 16. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. These are supposedly good people. These are supposedly his people. Look at what they're able to do. They recite the words. They know the words. They have Bible passages memorized. Having Bible verses memorized doesn't mean a thing. Okay, Satan quoted scripture to Jesus in the wilderness. But they also hate the meaning of the words. Verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. You know them, you have them memorized, and yet you cast my words behind you. How? They can recite the Ten Commandments and then they turn right around and violate the Ten Commandments. Look at this. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. Well, that's thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. The thief, well, that's thou shalt not steal. That's the eighth commandment right there that they violated. But wait, there's more. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own brother's son. That violates the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. So many people have these large sections of Scripture memorized, quick to recite, judge not lest ye be judged. They all know that one. But how many of these people are, have, have, are really obeying it? These people weren't. They knew it, and they were throwing it behind their back. Or many people know the Bible, and they know theology, and they know Hebrew and Greek, and yet they're dead inside. I'm looking at you, hypocrites. I'm looking at you, Pharisees. People say they won't come to church because of all the hypocrites. You know what? Uh, Jesus couldn't stand hypocrites. Do you know what the word, the Greek word for hypocrite is? It's hypocrite. The word actually comes from Greek uh, actors on the stage in Greek tragedies. It was talking about the mask that they would wear when they did plays. The mask is the hypocrite. Jesus couldn't stand hypocrites. He called them painted tombs. Look great on the outside, but with a fresh coat of white paint, but on the inside, they're full of dead bones. And if you don't hear, leave here hearing anything else this morning, here's the one thing I want you to hear. Psalm 50 is God condemning hypocrites. He calls them here the wicked you hate hypocrites, God does too. And don't say, oh, you hate hypocrites? Well, come on in anyway. We could use some more. No, no hypocrites. Don't be a hypocrite. Get rid of that. And for those who are guilty of hypocrisy, God's not fooled. Verse 21, these things you have done and I have kept silent. You thought that I was like yourself. 
Maybe you're guilty and you're thinking to yourself that uh, since I got away with my sin, well, maybe God forgot about it. Or maybe God doesn't mind it. That's thinking that God's like us. That's a dangerous thing to do. Don't think of God as a mere human being that forgets or ignores. Dangerous things happen from that like doing it again over and over and over because nothing bad happened to me before. So maybe God's okay with it. Maybe God's okay with me looking at that. Maybe God's okay with me talking about that person like that. Maybe God's okay with me smoking that or drinking that or laughing at that. I mean, he hasn't punished me. What's contract law say? It says, you know, silence is consent. You thought I worked like that? But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So the judge is about to give a warning. Part two, look at verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Mark this means to understand this. After all he said, get this through your thick skulls. Who? Both these groups. He's not talking just to the hypocrites anymore. He's talking to both these groups that he just talked about. The true believers that are coming from uh, falling into a shallow religion and the people that are acting like they're believers when actually they're breaking his laws. Lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. This is the highest court of the land. You can't appeal any higher than me. This is going to be the final judgment. Neither one of you are obeying me. That is more amazing than you might think. The hypocrite is being warned alongside with the true believer. Whoa, 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 Lord. I'm not with them. How do I get warned uh, along with the hypocrites? Because they have both done the same thing. Mark this then, you who forget God. They forgot God. How? They forgot that he's not about ritual. This is over and over in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says, Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To guard, to draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Why is it better to listen? It's better because listening to God through his word makes you know what the point is and whom it is that you are worshiping. Otherwise, your worship is the sacrifice of a fool. Why? Because you don't know what you're doing and you don't know who you're praying to, who you're offering to. And worst of all, these things are evil. All the things that he was saying in Psalm 50 is talking about. Not listening, but still worshiping is empty, ritual, and it is evil. Not listening and reciting scriptures that you are actually violating is the exact same thing as evil. And I hope I'm clear when I say that I mean to listen to God, I mean listen to God's written word in his Bible that has come down to us through the centuries. I mean, every now and then you'll hear people say, well, you read a book. I listen to God. A God who did what? A God who said what? You may well have heard God speak to you, but you will never hear God say anything that contradicts what he already said to the prophets and the apostles. So why not just go to the prophets and the apostles in his written word? Cults start that way stockpiling weapons and calling their place of worship a compound. You know, keep in mind that God is talking to both these groups of people, the true believers going through the motions that have no love in it and the religious 
hypocrites obeying the rules on the outside, but filthy rotten on the inside. They forgot that he is not about ritual. They forgot God is not like us. And it's important to never forget that. God doesn't give up on people. God is not tired. God is always watching. God's not a credit score. God does not hold a grudge. We hold grudges. We get fed up with people. And then when they've crossed the line, we cut them off. You're dead to me. And then we get scared that God is going to do something like that to us. Unless I give them a goat, or unless I give them a lamb or something, or cut them a check or give them a $20 bill, oh, then things will be fine. No. We give because we love to further the kingdom, because we want his kingdom to come, his will to be done. But the sacrifice that he actually wants is you. Eric Anderson was up here last week going over Psalm 40. Uh, You don't have to turn there. I'll read what I wanted to go to. But Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to know your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And his word in our heart will move us. It'll have effects. It'll have fruit. Look at verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly Will show this, I will show the salvation <coughs> of God. Here is our true offering, our offering. Our offerings will be thanksgiving. These people gave the first fruits they had. These people gave their, the first livestock born. These people gave the first fruits they harvested, not because it was the law, but because they were thanking God <coughs> as the one who made it possible. That is how you make thanksgiving your offering. That is the sacrifice that glorifies him. And that is in your heart between you and God before you ever brought that to him, before you ever did anything. He has seen your offering, but most importantly, he has seen what is hidden in your heart. Cain and Abel both made offerings. One got accepted, the other got rejected. What was the difference? The difference was the heart. The difference was who had listened and who had not listened one brought God what he had, God had given to him, and the other brought what he had worked for. He didn't have his word in his heart. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What does that mean? Our orders. Orders here means organize. The one who orders his way rightly. So he's saying the one who organizes your life rightly. He is not saying that we need to do more and give more and hunker down and volunteer more. That is not how you order your way way rightly. The one who does order his way rightly will get something. He will be shown the salvation of God. And that is by grace. When the Bible goes on and on about obeying him and good works and repenting, it never means to get saved or to get God's love. We have not begun in the spirit and been perfected by the flesh. That's the message of the book of Galatians. To obey is done for a different reason. There's a point to your life. There's a point to your life. You were saved for something. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He is our Lord, and we are his slaves, his friends, his brothers and sisters. He died for us, and he leads us out. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We follow him, and we obey him to grow into conforming into his image. The Holy Spirit is doing that inside of us. And he will do crazy things to disciple us and teach us and conform us into his image. Sweet things and bitter things. He'll put trials and storms in our way. He'll put difficult people in our lives. He will break us if that's what he thinks he needs to do. All for his glory. You conform to the image of Jesus brings him glory. And he will not do it the same way he does to everybody. He will not conform somebody else the same way he's conforming you. And that's why you need to be very, very careful how you pray for somebody who's being conformed to the image of his son. That is how you worship him in spirit and in truth. And he will not do it the same way for everybody. He has a plan to conform you. And nothing that you do or how you do it and, uh, will, will, uh, is of your own way, your own way. He will move you where he needs to be like the wind. And when we fight him, when we sin and ignore the Holy Spirit, we're just fighting the plan that he has for us to conform us to his image. And he will take us right back to the same lessons over and over again. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Don't be a hypocrite. You're not fooling anybody. Don't be religious. It's exhausting and it's a sin. We are not converts to a religion. We are converts, worshipers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Glory to you, Lord. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory. Thank you so much for the troubles and the trials and the conforming that you do in our lives. Let us not be hypocrites. Let us not be religious. Let us be worshipers of you. Keep us there. Keep us abiding. Keep us abiding on the vine. And we will give you all the glory in advance. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.